0: dealing with a, a pretty heavy piece of text today, as Daniel alluded to. And it's this last part here of chapter 6 in the Gospel of John. And so today's title, I wrestled with the, today, with the title for today because I wanted something kind of snappy and catchy, and uh, but there isn't any. This passage is about the blood and the flesh. And the people listening to Jesus misunderstood him. They misunderstood what he was saying about this. And, and here's the deal. If you and I misunderstand this, we will miss Jesus. And we don't want to miss Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to read a longer section of the biblical text than we normally do. Uh, but I'm doing that because I really want us to get a sweep of the whole story or the whole discourse. And we pick it up here in verse 25. So now just remember the context. Jesus has provided fish and bread for multitudes on the hillsides. Now these people are looking for Jesus. They have come to find him because they want him to continue to do this, right? So here we go. Verse 25 says, When they, that is the crowd, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed but because uh, you ate the loaves and had your fill. He says, do not work for food that spoils folks, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. I will be happy to give it to you, he says. For on him God, the Father, has placed his seal of approval, his endorsement. Verse 28, he says, then they, then, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is to believe, is to trust, is to have faith in the one whom the Father has sent. So they asked him, well, well, then what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who has given you the bread from heaven. It's my father who gives it to you. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always be giving us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. But as I told you, you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. And all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me will never be driven away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is his will. This is the will of the one who sent me, that I shall lose none of those whom he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this the Jews, they began to grumble, about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, wait a minute. Is this not Joseph, the son, uh, the, Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? What is he talking about? Still grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered, no one. Uh, st- stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent him draw, draws them. Sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. Is it not written in the prophets? They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. And very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now your ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I am it. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. Wait a minute. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're starting to think that Jesus is crazy. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat this flesh... Of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so that he who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Your ancestors ate the manna and died now, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogues in Capernaum, and then the next verse says, on hearing it, they left. (laughs) Think about that. That is just like listening to the sermon today, and then like 95% of the church just leaves the church because of the sermon. Imagine how heartbreaking this must have been. And so this story is going to tell us about three characters today. It's going to expose three, the nature and character of three people, or three groups. The first is the crowd. The second is Jesus. And the third is the nature of a true disciple. And here's the main thought. Jesus tests our faith to prove the genuineness of it. Jesus is going to try our faith, actively test it, to test the genuineness and sincerity and realness of it. So let's make some observations first about the crowd. Number one, the crowd is exposed. is what? They're false disciples. They're false disciples. Now now, based on our understanding of the timeline here, we think that we're probably about two and a half years in. Two and a half years into the mission, they have swamped Jesus on the hillsides, in the streets. They have filled up homes to listen to Jesus. This crowd has followed him everywhere. They have come from everywhere, and they have come to listen to him, but they have come for the wrong motives, and Jesus exposes those. And here's how you know you're a false disciple. Here's how the crowd should have known. The crowd wants Jesus on their own terms. The crowd wants Jesus on, our own ter- on their own terms. And anytime you and I want Jesus on our terms, we can't have Jesus. And what do they want? Well, they wanted a political solution to what they thought was a political problem. They wanted a political solution to what they thought was a political problem. And what was their problem? Herod. The economy of Herod. Why? Because Herod was a tyrant. And when you live in the economy of a tyrant, guess what? There's scarcity. So they wanted freedom from his tyranny and freedom from the economy of Herod, which was scarcity. You see, their livelihood was all about harvesting and fishing. The lake was already overfished. We know that from history. And the harvest was getting more and more difficult, the more and more taxes that were heaped on them. And now here is a man who is not an Edomite. Herod is an Edomite. He's a usurper. He shouldn't even be on the throne. And here's a man with thousands and thousands of people sitting on the hillsides who go, yes, this must be the Messiah. This guy is from the tribe of, tribe of Judah. He's a line of the tribe of Judah. He's a descendant of David. He could be our Messiah king. And the scripture says they wanted to usher Jesus in and force him to be king. And they wanted this because they wanted an end to Herod's rule and they wanted freedom from taxation, the onerous burden of taxation. And they wanted a magical Messiah. I can't tell you how much I I wish I had a magical Jesus I wish this last week that I had a magical Jesus, that I could just sort of pull out my lamp and rub it and have Jesus pop out and grant me a wish. But it doesn't work like that. Jesus is not your genie. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And they wanted a magical Jesus who would just provide bread for them forever, in perpetuity, for the foreseeable future. They said, sir, please always be giving us this bread. That tells you what they want. And they want Jesus on their own terms. Folks, you can't have Jesus on your own terms. You have Jesus on his, and he calls us to belief and trust and to bow the knee and surrender to him as the Lord of life. And then the crowd is not interested in the deeper significance, really, of anything. <laughs> they don't care about the deeper significance to anything. I mean, think about the sign, the sign of multiplying fish and bread. I mean, Jesus has So littered the hillsides with fish and bread, there's 12 basketfuls left over. And immediately they start thinking about Moses and the manna from heaven. So they've got that far, but they don't want to press beyond that and understand the deeper significance of that sign. It's not so that the Messiah can provide 40 years of bread or manna from heaven for you every day, it's so that you can see this is the bread of life. This is the one who has life in himself. He's the one. And they don't want that. They don't want Jesus. They just want what Jesus has. And they fail to see the significance of the sayings. I mean, how many metaphors does he have to use? Did you hear it when we just read it? I'm the bread. Okay, so now Moses gave you the bread in the desert, and you died. And I'm going to give you the bread, and you're going to live. And it's me. And he just can't get through to them. And so the crowd isn't interested in going beyond a shallow, easy believism. The crowd doesn't want to do the hard work of understanding. They don't want to press in and say, yes, I want to understand. Now, I didn't understand that, but I want to study it out, and I want to hear it from Jesus for myself. And the crowd never gets beyond mere audience status. The crowd is forever an audience. They never really become followers of his teaching. What do we know about an audience? What do we know about an audience? Well, an audience comes to consume a product, That's what audiences do. They consume a product. And so they consume bread and fish in excess until their bellies are fat and they are happy and they want more of that. And Jesus does actually initially give them that. He does provide for their needs, their immediate felt needs. An audience also demands signs before believing. Notice they say, okay, yeah, Jesus says, come, come believe. And they go, okay, what sign will you show us? We've got an idea. Give us more manna. (laughs) Remember that story. Back in Exodus, where the manna just fell out of the sky. Come on, Jesus. Do it like Moses. What will you do, they asked. And so the crowd is nothing more than fickle spectators who are there to be tickled by another story of trees and sheep and money lenders. And they do not seek deeper understanding of Jesus and what his significance is. And they are content with the pablum of parables and short stories and the occasional fireworks of miracles. But they don't want Jesus fundamentally in their heart they do not long for him that's the crowd and their response verse 60 verse 66 on hearing it many of his disciples said this is too hard this is too hard who can follow this teaching now think about that statement jesus is offering them sweet communion with god by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit to partake of Jesus, of God. And all they have to do is trust. They say, what are the works? And Jesus says, believe. And they go, that's too hard. That's just too darn hard. (laughs) Who can follow this teaching? This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Two, Jesus turns out to be more than a mere Messiah. Messiah. He turns out to be more than a mere Messiah. You say, now, wait a second. I thought the Messiah, that was everything, not their vision of it. If they expected to usher Jesus into Herod's throne room and to overturn his throne and to oust this false Edomite king and put Jesus on the throne there, the shepherd king of Israel in place of the tyrant king, If they expected him not only to rule in justice, but with endless miracles of bread and fish, alleviating their labor, alleviating their taxes, the burden of taxation, they have missed the point. Jesus has not come to be that. Not this time. Jesus is more than a mediator. Now, they're the ones that brought up Moses, right? They said Moses did this and that. So Jesus kind of has to take him to school. He says, well, no, Moses did no such thing. Let's, let's, let's go to school. God gave you that. He gave you the manna, and that's me. So, Jesus is a mediator. I want to be clear. He is a mediator. This is why we don't teach that uh, in the New Testament church, we don't teach that there are special priests that you have to go to. When you confess your sins, you don't have to come and knock on my office door. Ever. You can if you'd like. I know a lot of your secrets, by the way. That's my job. But it is not my job to mediate between God and you. Because 1 Timothy 2.5 says this. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is our high priest. And Revelation says we are a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of saints. So the Bible teaches the universal priesthood of all believers with Jesus as our high priest. Look at Hebrews 9:11 and 15. it says, "For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called by the Holy Spirit may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, now that he has died is a ransom to set them free from the sins committed in the old covenant. Get that? Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant, which sets us free from sin, from the sins committed under the old. But hear me well, He's not merely a mediator. He is not merely a mediator, and he is going to tell these people, it's time to go to school. I'm going to tell you, Moses was just a mediator. I'm not, and I'm going to tell you what I am. He is the Messiah King and Savior. Jesus is the Messiah King, and Jesus is the Savior. And they didn't understand that he came to be the King, the Lord, the sovereign over their hearts in open rebellion to God and sin. And if God can't rule there, what good is it for him to rule anywhere? What good is it? And so he's their Messiah, King, their Savior. And Jesus is the manna come down from heaven. Now, this surely is a metaphor. Jesus isn't a giant loaf of bread who dropped out of heaven. But he's trying to use a metaphor to get them to understand the deeper significance, the greater, the larger story here, the greater significance of it, the bread of their Old Testament stories, the bread that has now littered the hillsides that he miraculously provided. Jesus is greater. He's greater. Jesus is greater than anything he could provide for you. Jesus himself is greater than anything he could provide for you. A spouse, healing, good medicine, a good job, all of those things are wonderful to have. They surely are, but Jesus is better. He's the better man because he's come down from heaven to give us eternal life. And Jesus is our Pascal Lamb. He's our Passover Lamb. This is what I think he means by eating my flesh and drinking my blood. This, that analogy is just, he takes it and just tweaks it. And I think he takes it actually from Leviticus and Exodus. Here's where it comes from. Leviticus 17, 11. Here's what Moses told him. He says, for the life is in the blood. And, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. This is the blood of the lamb or the blood of the bull. It is the blood that makes atonement. Atonement for sin is in the blood. Where does this come from? It comes from Exodus 12, their Passover, the first one. Exodus 12, 7 and 8. Then they are to take some of the blood of the lamb that has been slain, and they are to put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. <clears throat> that, they, that same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. Jesus is trying to evoke these images in their mind of manna and Passover to say, I'm the bread, I'm the lamb, I'm it. And if you will partake of me, if you will come to me and believe in me and receive me, you will have the life that you seek. So much greater. So they have come for bread and fish, and Jesus offers them the blood and the flesh. That's what he offers them. True communion, true partaking of God and his holy nature so we can see in the statement, eat my flesh and subsist on my blood, that is Pascal, That is Passover language. Number three, the disciples are those who remain in Christ. So now we know what the crowd is. We know who Jesus is. Who are the disciples? Who are the true disciples? Now, to be fair, it call, John, John is peculiar in this, in that he calls the crowd both crowd and disciple. He uses those two words of the same group sometimes. In this case, he does. Now, Matthew doesn't. When Matthew writes his gospel, he goes, nope. I'm not even going to acknowledge that those people were disciples. I, it, Matthew has a sharp distinction between the akloi, that is the word for crowd, and matetai, that is the word for disciples. He says, nope, only the people who followed were real disciples. But John says, no, at the time, you know, they were disciples. They were considered disciples, but they were just false disciples. But the true disciples, they remain They remain in Christ, despite the controversy over Jesus. Despite the controversy over Jesus, it would be so much easier to just abandon Jesus, wouldn't it? You think Jesus is a controversial figure? Why is he the only religious leader whose name is a curse word? In our culture, nobody curses Buddha or Mohammed when they're mad. They evoke Jesus' name. Why? Because Jesus is controversial. He is so controversial because what Jesus says is, He says, No, unlike the rest of them, the only way you can get to the Father is through me. The only way you can have life, no matter what else in life you have, is in me. And He makes that exclusive claim about Himself, and no one else makes that claim about themselves. So Jesus is so controversial. Have you figured out yet that uh, magazine publishers sell a lot of magazines if they put a picture of a white pasty Jesus uh, on the cover and ask the question, Who is Jesus of Nazareth? If you figured that out, because every holiday season, Christmas and Easter, Jesus is on the magazines. Why? Because they sell a lot of magazines. And what happens? People read those magazines, and then some scholar, like N.T. Wright, says, no, Jesus is the king and sovereign, risen Lord of the world. And some guy goes, no, can't, that's too hard. I can't follow that. I want a warm, happy, fluffy Jesus. I want a kind, proto-hippie rabbi who gives me peace and flowers. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is so controversial, and they, and they remain despite the social pressure to abandon Jesus. Despite the social pressure to abandon, abandon Jesus, you know, there is an intensely powerful thing in groups. Psychologically, all of us have a need to be in the in-group. We want to be in the in-group, not the out-group. And so when we have a large crowd of people who are turning their backs on Jesus of Nazareth because they say, ah, faith, that's too hard. That's much harder than Torah, <laughs> you know. And then they walk, so they walk away from Jesus. It is the, just a knee-jerk psychological reaction to say, oh, yeah, I'm going with the crowd. But these disciples, they're not going anywhere. They're staying put. Despite the controversy over Jesus and despite the fact that the masses are turning away now from him. And I want you to hear me. If you're a college student visiting this season or if you're a high school senior or junior, I want you to hear me well. Just because everybody else at your school is doing their own thing and living wild and crazy, you don't have to. You can walk with Jesus and show yourself to be a true disciple, drawn by the Father, summoned by his presence to his lordship and him as Savior. And what's their response? Also, despite their lack of understanding. So here's the truth about the disciples. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about any more than the crowds do. Matthew, Mark, or Matthew, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, we don't know who those guys were, but we know who some of them were. Philip, these guys are following the Lord, Peter, James, John, and they're sitting there going, We don't get it either. We don't know what you're talking about, but we want you. You see, faith seeks understanding. And if you demand to understand everything before you believe and before you trust in Jesus, you never will. But once we come to believe that we come to trust in Jesus, it is a life of seeking understanding of our faith. So John repeatedly in this gospel characterizes the 12 as having misunderstood. Ever so often, he gives us the editorial comment, and the disciples misunderstood that. Or, and we just misunderstood what he was saying until after his resurrection. Because after the resurrection, they receive the spirit, and they have new eyes and a new heart to see the truth of God's word. And what Jesus taught. And what is their response? <laughs> Listen to this. Simon Peter, who usually does speak for the whole group. Here's what he says. Lord, to whom shall we go? Jesus says, do you want to leave too? He says, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What Peter is saying this: do you know how many rabbis Littering the hillsides, who have been trying to teach and draw disciples to themselves. Historians tell us there were probably a thousand rabbis in Jesus' time, a thousand traveling around, going from synagogue to synagogue and teaching their version of Torah. And I tell you, the first time Jesus came to their synagogue and stood there and read the word and then began to teach, everybody went, That's different, <laughs> something's different about him. And then they saw him perform miracles that are just spellbinding teaching and mind-boggling miracles. And, and Peter says, who else, what other rabbi could we follow after you? We're going to follow someone, but who could we follow after Jesus? What could we want after we want Jesus? After we've had you. And then he says, Lord, we, we, we believe and we have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. And, and, and friends, I'm here to tell you this. I don't believe in Jesus I know Jesus I don't believe in Carrie Kennedy I know her I live with her and I've come to believe but through that belief I have come to know the Savior like he is my air he's the breath I breathe he is real to me and I want him to be just as real to you and if you could in your heart say at any point in your life "Nah, I just rather have something else I'd rather have a miracle, I'd rather have a gift, I'd rather have something. You don't have Jesus and you don't have Peter's heart and the disciples because they want to stay and they want him, they want to know him. You may have been to church and recited a creed or sang the songs your entire life, but if you don't know Jesus, you'll be lost forever. Forever. Because it's not about just believing a creed, it's about knowing a person who's alive by resurrection. And so he invites us to it. He invites us to it. Notice Peter says, we've come to believe and we've come to know everyone else has missed it, but we didn't miss it. I want to close with this story by a pastor who's become one of my favorite preachers. His name is Jamin Roller. Jamin Roller is a campus pastor at the Village Church in Texas. And when he was younger, he wanted to be a storm chaser. Anybody ever wanted to be a storm chaser? Yeah, like when he was a little kid, he was just obsessed with tornadoes, and so he, as soon as he got out of high school, he got a job for some company which required him to drive this huge white truck, and on the hood of that truck was a large golden Texas Lone Star State logo, just, I mean, just big as all get out. You could see it coming for miles, and so they would have to drive from town to town and do whatever they were doing, and one day, he and his partner were driving, and the weather changed. And they were on their way to Oklahoma City, they were on Interstate 40, whatever that is, they were on Interstate 40 there, and as they were driving, he tells the story, the weather changed and then it got really bleak, and then the hail started and the wind started and they noticed there were no cars on the road. And so everyone had pulled over and he said to his friend, he said, huh, man, maybe we should pull over. And the guy said, nah, keep going. So he turned on the radio and sure enough, there was a tornado. The radio warning said this: there's a tornado that is touched down by I-40, Interstate 40, between mile marker 90 and 91. He looked up and they were at mile marker 88. And he said to his friend, We should go see that. <laughs> <laughs> and his friend said, No, we shouldn't. <laughs> so he hit the gas. He said, the closer that we got, the closer we got to mile marker 90, the worse the weather got. It became so uncomfortable that he actually contemplated turning over, but he was looking everywhere for that tornado. And now the hail is whipping against and just pelting that truck. And it's getting so bad that the truck is sliding on the, <laughs> on the interstate while they're driving. It's moving the truck like that. And then suddenly, they punched through the storm and it was clear. And he thought, ah, I missed it. And then they got to their hotel where they were going to check in. They checked in their hotel. They turned. He turned on the television. And right there, they had footage of the tornado tearing through a field. On the other side of the field was Interstate 40. And there was this white truck with a giant yellow (laughs) star. And he said, it was me. And I looked everywhere for it, and I missed it. You see, folks, these people in the crowd... They felt the power of God. They experienced it. They were even moved at times by it, but they missed Jesus. And you and I could do the same thing. We can come in here every single Sunday and yawn through the sermon. We can come here every single Sunday and just sort of hit autopilot and sing the songs and walk out the door and go back into the rest of our lives. And what God is challenging us to do today is capture the storm. Capture the tornado. Get into it. Embrace it. Don't miss Jesus because he is present by the Holy Spirit. He is present to commune with you and to transform you in your heart. Don't just be moved by the occasional story or the occasional inspirational song. Find Jesus. See him because he's here. Will you pray with me? I'm gonna invite our ushers to come up and prepare communion and the worship team is gonna come up as well and I just wanna pray for you this morning. The table that we're about to eat from It's called communion because it means that in our spirit, in our souls, we are communing with the living God through his resurrected son, Jesus of Nazareth. By the Holy Spirit, you and I have this mysterious, beautiful, wonderful communion with God. And these are just symbols. Symbols of bread, broken. Symbols of wine, poured out. And what those symbols mean is they, they point to the reality of Jesus' flesh and his body being crushed and bruised and broken for our sins. They point to the realities of the nails which pierced his hands and his feet, and the the lance that pierced his side all the way to his heart. And he did all of that not only to atone for our sins, but to give us communion with God, to invite us back into our harmonious peaceful, joyful, hopeful relationship with God. And so as we take of these symbols, that's what they mean. And so I want to encourage you this morning, take the opportunity to let the spotlights of the word into your heart. Let them examine you. And if you're not a believer and you you're just sitting in the crowd and you've experienced the force, the power, the truth of grace and Jesus and fellowship, but you've never really made it your own. You've never experienced God for yourself through Christ. Would you do it this morning? Do it through communion, we pray.